Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Modern Gnostic. This is part three in our esoteric patriotism uh, section where we're reading Stefan Heller's wonderful book, Freedom, Alchemy for a Voluntary Society. Uh, if you don't know, these episodes are coming out on video as well, so you can go to the Modern Gnostic YouTube channel and check it out there. And I highly encourage you to buy a copy of Stefan Heller's book. It is really good. It'll really help you when going through the series to be able to reference it, to read it. Uh, I think it's one of the most important books people who are interested in this subject can have during this time. Uh, thanks, as always, for tuning in. And I hope you enjoy the show. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Modern Gnostic and our continuing exploration of Stefan Heller's book, Freedom, Alchemy for a Voluntary Society. Uh, hopefully by now you guys have had a chance to get the book, look at it. Um, maybe you have it with you. You can read along. Today we're going to dive into chapter one which is called, appropriately, I think, Individual Soul Against Mass Mind. This is a pretty long chapter. I doubt we're going to get through the whole thing today. Maybe we'll get to uh, some sort of uh, halfway stopping point. Um, one of the things I'm noticing when I'm doing these is I've, I've uh, developed a great appreciation for the people who do uh, the reading for audiobooks because uh, it's pretty tricky to read out loud. I think uh, one of the things that I need to start doing is when I'm reading um, at home on my own, uh, I need to start reading out loud a little bit maybe to, to get used to it a little bit better. Um, so I think maybe we'll get through halfway through the chapter today, uh, but it'll be good. This is a really good chapter. He starts digging into the meat of things uh, in this chapter, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Um, and let me just say, I've been getting a lot of great feedback uh, from the videos, some positive, some negative. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, whether you disagree with what I'm saying or whether you agree with what I'm saying, I, I love to hear from people. Uh, some people have reached out, connected one-on-one -on -one, uh, via Facebook. That's awesome. I, I encourage people to do that. You can find me on Facebook under my name, Brian Stanford. Uh, you'll see my ugly mug on the profile picture, or you can find the podcast slash YouTube channel uh, Facebook page at Modern Gnostic. Also recently recorded a video with Greg Kaminsky from Occult of Personality that should be coming out on his Chamber of Reflection um, subscriber group. So if you're not a member of Chamber of Reflection yet, uh, I highly recommend uh, checking that out, checking out the Occult of Personality podcast. Um, the work Greg's doing, has been doing for years and years is incredible, um, had an incredible impact on me and my development, uh, started listening to that podcast many, many years ago. So if you're not already a member of Chamber of Reflection, I highly recommend going over there, subscribing, uh, paying the, the little bit of money it takes to become a supporter and get that extra content that Greg puts out all the time. It's really, really good stuff. All right, so we'll just jump right in to chapter one, Individual Soul Against Mass Mind. One of the most unfortunate circumstances of contemporary life is the degeneration and deterioration of both the concept and the meaning of the word politics. Aristotle stated with timeless insight that man is a political animal. The word politics in its original meaning is derived from the word polis, which described the city or city-state of the Greeks. From this key word, the people of the cradle of Western philosophy derived the word politia, translated as state, and polis, meaning citizen. 
Even the English word citizen contains the word city, thus calling attention to what may be one of the greatest and most creative cultural archetypes of humanity, the city. The city has been with us for a very long time, and its importance to the growth of human consciousness has been immense. Babylon, Egypt, Greece, and Rome have all earned their reputation as the progenitors of Western culture by their having developed cities within which the great alchemy of human progress and transformation could take place. As the alchemists knew that the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life could develop only in a properly designed vessel of great strength. So the peoples of the ancient Mediterranean were aware that cities were needed as vessels of transformation from which might arise such wonders of culture as art, education, religion, and philosophy. Cities also made possible the kind of conscious community life which allows free, evolving human beings to live together under conditions conductive to individual and collective spiritual growth. C.G. Jung, the great knower of the laws and goals of spiritual growth, commented approvingly on a statement popular in religious circles during the Middle Ages, which was probably derived from earlier pre-Christian sources, extra ecclesium nulla solus, usually but somewhat incorrectly translated as, outside of the church, there is no salvation. Prior to the coming of Christianity, ancient Greeks used the term ecclesia to denote the assembly of the electorate or the constituent membership of the city-state. Young thus took the statement to mean that in a psychological sense, community, especially community of a particular kind, contains a great healing or saving value, a solace for humanity. Thus, the statement more correctly means that health, salvation, wholeness, all concepts contained in the word salus are not accessible outside of the context of community. There is something mysteriously powerful, sacred, and mystical about the ecclesia or constituency of the city in the classical sense. In the city-state, the individual is already differentiated to a considerable degree from the collective or mass mind. The herd instinct has been to a large extent overcome. People are individuals. They have their individual pursuits, their own goals and purposes. Not only are city dwellers no longer dominated by the herd instinct, but they are no longer enslaved by nature either. We must remember, especially today when the shadow side of urbanization has made many people into romantic worshipers of nature, that adopting an urban rather than an arc uh, rather than an agricultural lifestyle has brought great opportunities for the growth of consciousness for many people throughout history. In the classical sense, the urban lifestyle affords humans the opportunity to be free of the blind tyranny of nature, its cycles and laws. In the city, human beings become autonomous. In other words, they become their own lawgivers rather than submitting to the laws of nature. It is perhaps easy to forget in our days how limiting and tyrannical the rule of nature can be for human consciousness. Jung has widely pointed out that nature is one of the primary symbols of the archetype of the great mother, which in turn is one of the primary symbols of unconsciousness. Nature and with her, instinctuality, tribalism, and herd instinct are the great carriers of unconsciousness in human life. As these factors are controlled, human beings become more conscious and with consciousness comes autonomy, sovereignty, and the ability of the individual to call on his or her own conscious resources of will, decision-making, 
judgment, reason, and meaning. While it would be a mistake to assume that nature, instincts, and collective factors can or should be repressed and shackled in the life of the individual or of the community, we must realize that it is city life rather than pastoral or agricultural life that historically brought the true growth of consciousness. The Greek polis, the city and its community, the ecclesia, were therefore uniquely archetypal and creative developments in the life of humanity. For the first time in history, free individuals began to be involved in the political process by taking an active and responsible part in governing themselves. The views expressed by Plato and other leading thinkers regarding forms of government have a profound bearing on the psychological overtones of this political process. Of the three forms of government known to the Greeks, democracy, aristocracy, and tyranny, the philosophers tended to prefer aristocracy because in their view, it represented the rule of the best, the most conscious persons, the aristoi, who would obviously govern in accordance with the enlightened dictates of consciousness. Direct democracy appeared as too hazardous to the wise men of classical antiquity. They felt it might easily lend itself to mob rule or to similar regressions to the instinctual, instinctuality of the herd. Thus, the Greeks were responsible for the unique and valuable concept of using the political process for enhancing the consciousness of individuals. Politics, in the classical Greek understanding of its meaning, was really a phenomena of psychological individuation. And I think this is a really interesting point. Um, it seems like in, in, in a, uh, the modern climate, we're all just so burnt out with politics, right? With politics as it's, as it's played um, currently in the United States. And some of the comments that I've, I've gotten on the videos uh, could kind of be boiled down to, in essence, why should a spiritual person focus on politics? Politics is a distraction. Thinking that you know making videos and talking about politics is going to change anything is a distraction. It's a trap for the spiritual person. You know the true esoteric paths lead away from this kind of thinking. Um, and I, I I understand what people uh, mean when they. I think I understand what people mean when they say that. And I think that they're recognizing the kind of hollowness and shallowness and. Um, um, small-minded, petty, manipulative nature of politics as it exists right now and as we see it being played out right now. And I feel like over my life of 48 years, that kind of shallow politics has only ramped up to where, you know, nowadays it, it's just a, it's a mockery of a mockery. Um, it's, it's ridiculous. But these, these fundamental idea, at least from the Greek tradition, is as Stefan Heller said, it was understood as a phenomena of psychological individuation. Um, it was a, a, an idea that the political process would actually enhance the spiritual development and understanding um, and realizations of the human being. And this is pretty this is pretty unique. I think this is something that uh, most of us in the spiritual community are not would not be familiar with this idea that that actually uh, political activity, political thinking, uh, being involved in how your uh, family, community, uh, state, neighborhood, whatever nation are being run um, is actually a spiritual uh, an expression of a spiritual endeavor, and maybe even a spiritual technique, a way to cultivate 
um, the inner freedom and liberation that is um, the, the, the goal of the Gnostic path. So it gets into that more in this next section, which is called politics as the vehicle of consciousness. It is clear that politics can and indeed should be something radically different from what it has become in the contemporary mind and society. Politics, the science of community, is in a certain sense also an expression of the science of the soul and of the art of the soul's growth and transformation. That's interesting. Let's read that again. Politics, the science of community, is in a certain sense also an expression of the science of the soul and of the art of the soul's growth and transformation. The life of the community can become a useful modality for the enhancement, amplification, and expansion of individual consciousness. In contemporary society, this is seldom the case, but this regrettable circumstance by no means mitigates against the fact that the political process can have such spiritual value and that there were times when this value was openly recognized and cultivated. Both Jung and the Gnostic wisdom can shed a considerable light on the value of politics. The Gnostics were culturally Greek, having lived and worked in the so-called Hellenistic period of antiquity, within which the Greek spirit, amplified and enriched by other cultural influences, acted as a magnificent synthesizing agent of spiritual currents. The very word Gnosticos, or knower, is of course Greek. The Greeks called certain persons whom they suspected of unusual acumen in spiritual matters Gnosticoi, or people who know. From our point of view, we might say that the Gnostics were individuated persons, or technicians of individuation. Such persons would, as a matter of course, have a great, even an overweening concern with freedom, and the Gnostics definitely had such a concern. Confirming to the prevailing genre, the Gnostics did not express their concerns with liberty in simple political or declarative terms, but rather employed myth and poetic imagery to give voice to their ideals and preoccupations. Their central myth, which to them was no mere fable, but a matter of profound spiritual dedication, de depicted the existential need of the soul to free itself from the shackles and limitations of its condition in the world. An important role in this myth was played by the figures of the Demiurge and the Archons. These were envisioned as cosmic psychological tyrants and oppressors of the soul, whose natural tendency predisposed them to an inimical attitude towards human liberty, spiritual or physical. Gnostics saw themselves as the vanguards of human freedom, struggling by the use of spiritual means against the ubiquitous forces of tyranny in the realms of nature and being. The Gnostic preoccupation with the issue of liberty led to the much debated and maligned position of antinomianism, which means opposition to rigid structures of religious uh, legalism. The Gnostic approach to religion was and is highly individualistic and nonconformist. All in all, it would be quite correct to say that Gnostics throughout history were spiritual libertarians. Of course, this libertarianism proved to be their downfall. The Gnostics were not organized in an authoritarian fashion and thus had no effective power structures. Thus, they were overwhelmed by forces that possessed the power they themselves lacked, the authoritarian, organized orthodoxy of the newly streamlined Constantinian church, supported by the mightiest power structures of ancient history, Imperial Rome.
In more ways than one, Gnosis and Gnosticism were intimately connected with the ideals of a spiritually based political freedom. The Gnostic schools were, in fact, the last vestiges of such freedom when they were obliterated in the third and fourth centuries. And this, like I, I told you guys in the beginning of these videos, this book had a profound impact on my ideas for this uh, thing I'm calling esoteric patriotism. And I have, like, from the original time I read this book, this this part right here highlighted the um, in more ways than one, Gnosis and Gnosticism were intimately connected with the ideals of a spiritually based political freedom. And I think that that's one of the things um, that we are seriously lacking now is a spiritual basis for our understanding of political freedoms. So most people in America, most people in the West would recognize something like um, freedom of speech, but they don't really have a connection to the spiritual basis for why we have a concept of something like freedom of speech, or even more than that, something like the, the rights of an individual. Like why, why in the West do we value the rights of the individual higher than the rights of the collective? Uh, there's spiritual reasons for that. Those, those political ideas are rooted in spiritual truth, um, and that's a really important point. Next section is called Jung's Modern Gnosis. C.G. Jung, whose modern gnosis used a psychological modality for its expression, enunciated libertarian principles in essential agreement with and in continuation of the gnosis of old. Though his was a psychological gnosis, it was a gnosis nevertheless. Jung's teachings contain the theme that the soul has an inherent tendency towards individuation, a process who object, whose objective is ultimate wholeness, sovereignty, freedom, and autonomy. The process of individuation, according to Jung, consists to a large extent of the union of the opposites in the psyche, high and low, masculine and feminine, good and evil, must eventually be reconciled in the souls of human beings. The union of these opposites, moreover, always involves liberating the shadow, bringing the darkness to light within oneself, which is to a great extent an antinomian Gnostic principle. Jung's psychology is, in essence, about freedom, liberty, and liberation, or the increase of freedom. Psychologically, this means freedom from complexes, from thraldom to the unconscious, from one-sidedness of consciousness, and from excessive attachment of the conscious ego to itself and to its values and beliefs. Though Jung's is a psychological libertarianism, while the Gnostics espoused a religious spiritual libertarianism, both positions have a definite social meaning with definable and recognizable political and social implications. To discover some of these and apply them within a contemporary context is the objective of this chapter and of those which follow. To begin, I explore some of the most important Gnostic ideas contained in contemporary form in Jung's teachings, which might help illuminate the concept of freedom. The conflict of the individual with the mass. The first and most important of these ideas is the conflict between the individual human psyche or the individuating psyche with the mass psyche, or as it may be called, the conflict of the individual with the mass. We live today in a world very different from the Greek city-states. Ours is, for the most part, a mass culture. 
where quantitative cultural factors predominate. Populations are huge, cities gigantic, and conflicts and problems exist on a mass scale. The psychological implications of this condition are considerable and perilous, because under such circumstances, problems take on overwhelming aspects and may crush the individual. Modern problems tend to become so big that individuals tend to give up and not do anything about them. We must remember to select problems that are our size. To become too global, too cosmic in our thinking about problems is always fatal. We must keep our problems small so that we may be able to do something about them. Still, it must be kept in mind that mass-mindedness is not just the result of a world in which many things exist on a mass or huge scale. Jung said that there was definite historical processes that produced the modern mass mind. Political and social theories and practices do not exist in a philosophical and psychological vacuum. They are organically linked to two important factors. One, the human being's view of the universe, and two, the human being's view of him or herself. A concept of society, government, and justice always rests on a cosmos conception and on a view of soul redemption. These two conceptions may not always be consciously verbalized, but they are nevertheless always present. Thus, behind every political and social condition is both a metaphysics and a metapsychology. I think this is a really, really interesting point. What he's saying here, I, I think, my interpretation, would be that the various political systems, various political solutions that we see in the world are rooted in a spiritual view of who and what the person is. And so we can say the classical liberal uh, form of, you know, I, I think basically we have, uh, we can see classical liberalism in the world, we've seen fascism in the world, we've seen communism in the world in the in our modern times and each one of these schools of philosophy and economics has a metaphysics it has a view of who and what uh the individual person is and what their relationship is to the world outside them and, and kind of uh, uh where they should be going where they come from where they fit into the world and it's important to recognize this and to recognize uh maybe what our own um inner view of these things, what kind of political view that leads to, and are the two congruous? And so it was something that I began to think about early on in this project was looking at um, the, the fundamental uh, suppositions of something like classical liberalism, and then thinking about what are the spiritual roots of those things, and then looking at something, say, like communism, and wondering, what could the spiritual roots be of a system like that? Now, something like communism is is professes to be atheistic, and that might well be so, but it's, uh, I think Jung would say, and I would say, and I think Bishop Heller is saying that regardless of what they say about being atheists, they are acting on a metaphysical view of the self and other. Thus, behind every political and social condition is both a metaphysics and a metapsychology. To illustrate, it may be useful to recall a few examples. Behind feudalism and the perma-mercantile and pre-financial character of medieval society stood the Augustian Christian Civitas Dei, the concept of a transcendentally inspired godly society. Similarly, for the first 150 years of its history, the United States based its political and socioeconomic practice 
on the ideas and the ideals of the Age of Enlightenment with its essential belief in the perfectibility of human beings. This basis made economic laissez-faire, free enterprise, and various forms of individualism appear to be the necessary outflow of these ideals. On the opposite pole, uh, National Socialist or Nazi Germany and its many horrors were not sui generis or the mere expression of the insane will of a clique of madmen. Rather, behind the Nazi horror leaned a ruthless mythos, no less impressive for being befuddled of blood and soil and the metaphysical sacredness of race. Similarly, communist Russia and its satellites, including Mao's China and the Asian communist dictatorships, were or are rooted respectively in a dogmatic worldview derived from Marx and Engels and having distinctly metaphysical overtones. Western culture has been based for some 12 to 1300 years on the Christian ecclesiastical worldview. Its dominance may be reckoned roughly to have endured from 400 AD to 1600 AD. This worldview was by no means a perfect ideology. It had powerful repressions built into its fabric, as Jung pointed out, particularly against nature, sex, and the creative imagination. It was a worldview characterized by a considerable amount of unconsciousness, and the culture based upon it was cruel, violent, and superstitious, but it held together for a long time. The political and ethical system of this ideology and society was effective and had considerable staying power. Then the structure began to crumble. The first blow came from science, or more precisely, from the science of astronomy. Nicholas Copernicus, Galileo Galilei, and Johannes Kepler challenged the Ptolemaic uh, system of geocentric astronomy, thereby assailing the symbolic structure of the traditional conception of the Christian cosmos. The next attack was made by Machiavelli in the field of statecraft, when he declared that no conventional rules of morality were to bind the ruler of a country. Thus, the heavens and the princes both became exempt from the conditions of the medieval Christian law of the cosmos. Then came the reformation of Luther and Calvin, who, devised, who divided the previously monolithic fabric of the church itself. These influences were followed by those of the sciences of physics, in which Isaac Newton exempted the microcosm of the physical world from direct divine guidance and governance. The Enlightenment drove the medieval theological cosmology more or less successfully out of philosophy and literature. Voltaire, Rousseau, and their fellows accomplished a secularization of intellectual and artistic culture that would have appeared impossible a few hundred years earlier. The next move was made by the Industrial Revolution, which exempted the field of economics from the ethical structure of traditional Christianity. Then Charles Darwin's evolutionary theory invaded the biological sphere, the very body of the human being, and excluded from this vital area the hand of the Christian creator deity. And finally, at the beginning of the 20th century, psychology, led by Sigmund Freud, drove the coup de grace home by proving, at least to the satisfaction of millions, that there is no divine mystery, no beautiful romantic spark in the soul. Instead, the mind or soul is the dwelling place of fierce lusts and dark complexes and of strange figures such as the id, the libido, and the superego. So it came to pass that the old cosmology was driven from the cosmos, from politics, from the body of the church through schism, 
from philosophy, from physics, from biology, from economics, and eventually from the last stronghold of religious and spiritual realities, the very soul of the human being. These historical developments have produced two consequences. One, they destroyed the dominance of West, over Western culture of the Christian cosmology formulated in late antiquity and formalized in medieval times. And two, they have caused great and grave psychological dislocations, which led to what Jung recognized as the mass mind in contemporary culture. Several factors thus contributed to the rise of the mass mind. The Reformation emancipated the state from the supernaturally based rule of the church and gave the state more totalitarian power than it possessed previously. The Enlightenment brought an overemphasis on rationalism and led to a frightful repression of the irrational, unconscious side of the psyche. The Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution together brought an increasingly alienated individualism, egoism, selfishness, and lack of relatedness to the collective factors of life. This, as Jung pointed out, brought a compensatory reversion to the collective man in the form of the rise of socialism and communism. The removal of the state and of government from the context of morally binding religious cosmology bestowed more and more power upon political establishments, and thus Nietzsche's will to power could increasingly create unrestrained totalitarian societies with dictatorships of many kinds. Some became conjoined with the compensatory reversion to the collective man, such as Hitler's National Socialist State and the so-called people's democracies and related dictatorial, dictatorial regimes of communist countries. The eruption of Freudian ideas into the field of education and sociology has attempted to subject many personal and social phenomena to a cold, rationalistic view, which evaluates human beings in terms of such abstractions as socialization, adjustment, infantilism, and narcissism. These concepts contributed greatly to the loss of individual dignity, self-esteem, optimism, and creativity. These influences have also contributed to the lowering of the standards of education, with a corresponding deterioration of both the intellectual skills and the personal integrity and discipline of those educated by this system. The lower circles of the inferno of modern society have been thus populated by an educational process that has lost its own soul. All these phenomena have produced a new creature with what Jung called the mass psyche. What kind of creature is this? Here are some of the characteristics mentioned by Jung. A person with a mass psyche is socially isolated from other human beings, separated from the unconscious and not in touch with the instincts. Moreover, this person is spiritually uprooted, having no vital connection with symbol systems and authentic traditions of a religious mythical nature. Such a person is aesthetically insensitive, having little appreciation of beauty, either in nature or in art, and is lacking in a sense of romance and imagination to see beyond the personal concerns of the ego. Finally, the mass-minded person expects economic and political changes and upheav upheavals to solve all problems and perplexities because he or she seeks for the source of all good and evil in the objective environment rather than in subtle interior factors. Jung said once 
that he was tempted to construct a political theory of neurosis insofar as the man of today is chiefly excited by his political passions. This is, this is probably more relevant right now than when uh, Bishop Heller wrote this in 1992. Uh, reading that list of things in the description of the mass psyche uh, definitely sounds like a, a good description of what we see if we look around us today in our, in our, in our culture, in our communities, at our jobs, amongst our friend groups, especially on social media. We have then in the person with a mass psyche, a new kind of political animal, very much inferior to the Zoon politicon of the ancients. The citizen of the ancient city-state made use of the public cause in a conscious manner to advance the process of individuation, while the modern person with a mass psyche misuses politics as an unrealistic extroverted projection and an occasion for living out the pressures and evils of the unconscious. It is here that human beings become increasingly involved in mass mindedness. They take to collective and political movements wherein their already precarious and puny individuality dwindles to minuscule proportions. Imitation, dependence, lack of personal judgment, a lowering of the mental level are the inevitable accompaniment of the submerging of the individual in a mass movement. Political mass movements are the great carriers of mass mindedness. And as such, they are, above all, a moral danger. And I think we can look recently uh, in, in the past summer to the stuff we saw with Antifa and with, with some aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement. And we saw it very recently with the QAnon groups, um, with people coming together in these mass uh, groups that think that through these violent political actions, they are going to create a better world for themselves. And they really kind of lose all sense of individual sense and agency and 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 form together this whole wholly other thing and it's so apparent to anyone looking from the outside in uh, the destructive nature of of these kind of movements and and there's another I'm not really going to talk about it right now but there's another way in which if you're really interested in changing the conditions of society Involvement in these kinds of things runs completely counter uh, to any kind of project that's going to increase individual liberty and sovereignty. <clears throat> the morality of a group or movement exists in inverse ratio to its size. Jung said that any large company composed of a wholly admirable persons has the morality and intelligence of an unwieldy, stupid, and violent animal, and that the bigger the organization, the more unavoidable is its immorality and blind stupidity. As the Romans used to say, the Senate is a monster, but the senators are good men. What then is the answer to the great problem of mass-mindedness? It is evident from the foregoing discussion that the answer will not be found in ideologies and even less in movements, no matter how commendable their proclaimed objectives. The answer is not a movement, but the individual. The individual is the only hope, and since even the mass-minded person is latently an individual, this is a hope of considerable magnitude and promise. Jung's Gnosis of Hope the social and historical message of the Gnosis of Jung is one of hope, based on a principle within the innermost soul of every person, the self. 
the hope of glory. What really happens in history happens not at the conference tables, not on the battlefields or on the barricades, but within us. Carl Jung put it this way, quote, when we consider the history of humanity, we see only the very surface of events, and even these are warped by the dim mirror of tradition. What really happened escapes historical research, for the real historic happening is deeply hidden, lived by all and perceived by none. It is the most private, the most subjective, psychic life and experience. Wars, dynasties, social revolutions, conquests, and religions are all the most superficial symptoms of a secret, psychic, fundamental attitude in the individual, unknown to him and therefore not recorded by any chronicler. The great events of world history are in themselves of small importance. What is important in the final reckoning is only the subjective life of the individual. In our most private and subjective lives, we are not only these who suffer, but also those who make the age. Our age, it is ourselves. And that's from the meaning of psychology for modern man in Civilization and Transition by Carl Jung. The, this Gnostic or internalist position is relatively easy to understand and even to agree with. But to draw the proper conclusions from it is rather more difficult. On one hand, we must recognize that it is futile as well as inaccurate to employ negative projection in social and historical matters. Fault finding is almost always a matter of negative projection. If I feel bad, helpless, depressed, anguished, lacking in ego strength, and so forth, I will not be substantially better off if I blame them for my condition, whoever they may be. No poor man or woman has become richer by raging against the wealthy. No son or daughter with a weak ego has become strong by blaming and denigrating an overbearing mother or an overly stern father. Projecting our negative conditions onto others creates the illusion of improvement, but is actually an unhealthy mechanism through which we try to make ourselves feel better. The awakening, however, is always harsh, painful, and depressing rather like a severe hangover after an unwise indulgence. While, never, while negative projections prove themselves to be of little value, they often attach themselves to outward causes and charge them with great power. This phenomena, which has been the bane of ideologies throughout history, is ultimately self-defeating and dangerous to society and individual alike. Jung expresses this idea as follows, quote, when a problem that is at bottom personal and therefore apparently subjective impinges upon outer events which contain the same psychological elements as the personal conflict, it is suddenly transformed into a general question that embraces the whole of society. In this way, the personal problem gains a dignity that was hitherto wanting, since a state of inner discord has an almost mortifying and degrading quality, so that one sinks into a humiliated condition both without and within like a state dishonored by civil war. It is this that makes one shrink from displaying before the larger public a purely personal conflict, provided, of course, that one does not suffer from an overdaring self-esteem. But when it happens that the connection between the personal problem and the larger contemporary event is discerned and understood, a relativity is established that promises release from the isolation of the purely personal. In other words, the subjective problem is amplified to the dimensions of a general question of our society. And that's from Jung's psychological types. 
As a rule, such amplification produces more problems than it solves. When a personal neuroses are compounded into social and political causes, they do not lose their neurotic character. They just grow from personal neuroses into mass neuroses. From a private problem, they become a general madness. This principle, simple as it is, is one of the most frequently overlooked facts of life and therefore the cause of the greatest disasters in history. To quote Jung again, quote, it is so much easier to preach the universal panacea to everybody else than to take it oneself. And as we all know, things are never so bad when everybody is in the same boat. No doubts can exist in the herd. The bigger the crowds, the better the truth and the greater the catastrophe. And that's from Jung's Psychology and Alchemy. The psychologically wise attitude, therefore, must be one which is invariably distrustful of situations which can lead to mass neurosis or herd-like behavior. In short, to all these blandishments of the collective which usurp the judgment and discrimination of the individual. Each and every person must become his or her own movement, a personal and unique activist unit, an individual political party. Only ceaseless vigilance in the face of the enticement and temptations of the collective unit will keep us free from mass-mindedness. Jung mentions in this respect the comic example of one of his friends. Jung once found himself with this friend in a huge crowd of people. His friend could take the crowd for only so long, then he suddenly exclaimed, Here you have the most convincing reason for not believing in immortality. All these people want to be immortal. On the other hand, it is obvious that intelligent and useful changes and transformations must occur in society, or as one might phrase it, social progress is desirable. Can such progress occur without movements, collective causes, and their attendant problems? Jung apparently believed that such progress could be accomplished with a minimal involvement of individuals in collective ideologies and causes. Quoting from Jung again, quote, our blight is ideologies. They are the long-expected antichrist. Inasmuch as collectivities are mere accumulations of individuals, their problems are also accumulations of individual problems. One set of people identifies itself with the superior man and cannot descend, and the other set identifies itself with the inferior man and wants to reach the surface. Such problems are never solved by legislation and tricks. They are only solved by a general change of attitude. And the change does not begin with propaganda and mass meetings and violence. It begins with a change in individuals. It will continue as a transformation of their personal likes and dislikes, of their outlook on life and their values. And only the accumulation of such individual changes will produce a collective solution. And that is from Jung's Psychology and Religion, West and East. What is needed then in order to produce social progress is the integrative process of the individual. The elixir of human history is not political, social, or even religious ideology with its movements, parties, organizations, and churches, but the psychic life of the individual with its growth and integration, its becoming whole and complete. It must be noted with satisfaction that political life in the United States has been historically remarkably free from ideology. When, as it has been the case so often in America, the political process becomes a particular matter of problem solving and of pragmatic 
exigencies. Even though the game of the adversary relationship of political parties is played, the danger of mass mindedness is minimized and a personal growth within the political process is, is rendered more likely. Still, the temptation of fanaticism, of crusades and quasi pseudo religious influence in politics, along with their secular messianism of Marxism, stands out most prominently, is ever present and must be combated. Regrettably, Marxist-influenced ideological elements have not vanished from American society, although they tend to avoid the Marxist label until now when more and more people are embracing that label, which is interesting. Collective experience of the psyche are no substitute for the individual experience of transformation. Not only are they not able to take, it, take its place, but very often they are inimical to it because they lower the level of conscious awareness of the individual. As Jung cogently expressed it, quote, if I undergo what is called a communal experience within the group, this occurs at a deeper level of consciousness than when I experience something alone. Therefore, the group experience is much more frequent than an individual experience of transformation. It is also much easier to achieve, for the collective presence of many people has a great suggestive power. The individual within the mass is extremely suggestible. As soon as he becomes part of the mass, man is below his usual level. Of course, he re can retain the memory of the ethically superior being he once was, but when he is in the mass, his memory is no more than an illusion. It suffices for something to happen. For instance, a proposal is made, which the whole mass adopts, and he is also for it even if the proposal is immoral. Within the mass, man feels no sense of responsibility, but also no fear. And that's from Jung's two essays on analytical psychology. And I wonder how many people who participated in the protests at the Capitol woke up in jail the next morning or two days later and thought, what the hell have I done? The, the psychology, the mob mind of crowds uh, swept, swept, sweeps people away. This truth may be somewhat difficult to appreciate within the context of American culture with its historically high regard for majority rule and democracy. What we must remember is that the true philosophical foundations of the American system never contained the notion that the majority is always right morally or that it's philosophically correct and infallible. Majorities can be wrong, and strong safeguards must at all times exist in order to guard against the potential excesses of majorities. Tyranny exercised by a majority is still tyranny and often a more dreadful tyranny than one exercised by a minority, which is bound to crumble in some manner eventually. Even though this principle is self-evident in many ways, witness such injustices as lynch laws and the oppression of racial and religious minorities by majorities. A sort of false mythos about the virtues of majority position has nevertheless infiltrated the thinking of democracies. The acceptance of the lowest common denominator as normative in many areas of life, particularly in education, aesthetics, arts, and related fields, and a consequentially anti-intellectualism and exaltation of vulgarity and intellectual and ethical shabbiness are common phenomena in our culture. All too often we have forgotten that democracy does not imply that the majority position is automatically true or morally right. On the contrary, Democracy implies that persons dare to be individuals, even against the prevailing opinions of the majority, if the individual's conscience so dictates. I feel like this is something we are, we are getting rapidly away from and in our mind, 
we equate democracy with something uh, simplistic like majority rule. Uh, but we should not forget, as, as Bishop Heller points out, there can be a tyranny of the majority. And many things in the um, original structure of the American form of government, uh, the reason that we have a republic and not just a pure democracy is to resist this tendency towards the tyranny of the majority over the minority. Individual transformation and social benefit. One of the most important questions still remains unanswered, however. If an individual process of transformation is possible and desirable, how is this transformative process to take place within history? And how can it or will it benefit the structure of society? In other words, if we continue to advance in our internal and personal transformation, will the world become better? This is like the fundamental question of the spiritual practitioner, right? So he's building this chapter up to say the way that you create a better world is not through all of this mass movement. It's not through political ideologies. It's through the individual uh, liberatory spiritual work of the individual. But if, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we got to think like, well, really? Like I, I create some internal freedom and liberty in myself. Well, how, how is that going to affect the rest of society, right? Like I get up every morning, I do my meditation, say my prayers. Is that really having a, an effect on the culture at large? To answer this question is extremely difficult. Much hinges on the interpretation in this context of the term better. What do we mean by better? Whose definition of good shall we accept when evaluating betterment or improvement in society? From the point of view of Gnosticism and of its modern manifestation in the views of Jung, True improvement in any condition must include both of the opposite factors which make up the fabric of the matter at hand. Improvement or progress, therefore, does not imply the gradual vanishing and eventual absence of evil or of conflict and the steady increase of what one may call good. Against the different varieties of utopianism, both past and present, Jung and the Gnosis represent a view which strives for wholeness rather than conventional goodness. To make society better does not necessarily involve linear improvement of the ordinary variety. The veracity of this proposition and view is, once again, easily discernible in theory, but becomes beclouded by emotional attitudes and reactions in the arena of practical action. In order to see, in order to see real improvement in society, it is often necessary for the shadow side of life to emerge into plain view instead of subsisting in the dark recesses of repression and neglect. This might be occurring in our culture right now. Many examples could be cited. The racial question certainly was and is in need of recognition and attention, and only by way of its often unpalatable emergence into plain view can proper solutions to its grave problems be developed. The profligate and improvident ways of communist states, as well as many third world socialist states, could only be halted by measures which did not improve the economy or the quality of life of numerous citizens. In the body politic, as well as in the psyche of the individual, the acceptance of the dark shadow often brings turbulence and unhappiness. Things have to become worse before they can become better. Implicit in this statement of popular wisdom is the recognition that good and bad or better and worse are complementary opposites, which only together produce true improvement. These recognitions are of crucial importance to society. As we discover that society must give positive recognition not only to the so-called good, but also to evil, 
our body politic may in effect become an alchemical vessel of ultimate transformation. Perhaps what we shall have eventually will not be a better society, but a more complete one that ceases to repress its own shadow side and instead gives it its due recognition, hopefully without becoming possessed by it. In this eventuality, society will cease to be the oppressive master of its members. Rather, it will become the expression of the plurality of the individuals who are constituent members of its ecclesia. We need not fear that society will denigrate, become decadent, or otherwise suffer as a result of such developments. For what or who is society but ourselves? Where did we ever acquire the preposterous notion that society is some sort of self-existing entity, having a life and a meaning apart from the life and meaning of its constituent members? Jung stated this most clearly in the following quote. If man cannot exist without society, neither can he exist without oxygen, water, albumin, and fat, and so on. Like these, society is one of the necessary conditions of his existence. It would be ludicrous to maintain that man exists in order to breathe air. It is equally ludicrous to say that man exists for the sake of society. Society is nothing more than the concept of the symbiosis of a group of human beings. A concept is not a carrier of life. The sole and natural carrier of life is the individual, and this holds true throughout nature. And that's from Jung's Psychotherapy Today, The Practice of Psychotherapy. Let us take courage. The present rapid transformation in Western society may spell the end of the baneful philosophy of the excluded middle, which ever prevents the union of opposites. It is true that many undesirable conditions exist in our society, and that some of these have increased dramatically in recent years and decades. Crime is rampant, and life is less safe than it was some time ago. The once sacrosanct images of family and home are tarnished. The moral shibboleths of the past carry less weight than they did. Poverty and sickness, physical and psychological afflictions are prevalent. Still, there is no reason to suppose that these signs of the times carry overtones beyond their immediate practical import. They are not signs in the heavens, plagues of Egypt, or heralds of doom, or of an apocalyptic future. On the contrary, they indicate that many shadows previously imprisoned in the Tartarian underworld of civilization now walk in the daylight, where we may see them and understand them. Meaning has, has ever come forth from conflict and struggle. And the only true peace has always been the peace of the graveyard. The greatest danger facing our culture and society is not crime, moral decline, poverty, or even the much-touted factors of pollution and ecological imbalance. Rather, it is the insidious but deadly phenomena of mass-mindedness. If we can combat this danger and keep it at bay, then we may be assured that the potential of a creative and transformative future can be ours. If we lose to this enemy, our options for future change and progress are few indeed. As long as we continue to resist mass-mindedness, as long as we persist in saying no to turbulent collective movements of one kind or another, there may be rightly nourished within us the merciful hope that the alchemy of history will produce through us and in us the philosopher's stone, the great elixir, the archetype of wholeness, which is the creative union of the opposites. Indeed, these are the times when we may all say in our own behalf what Jung said after World War II, quote, whereas I formerly believed it to be my bounded duty to call other persons to order, I now admit 
that I need calling to order myself. Let us then call ourselves to order, and we may be assured that history and the world will answer such a call. Let us call ourselves to order, which means to call ourselves to wholeness. The ancient Gnostics said that a man of light lights up the whole world. Carl Jung stated that the individual is the makeweight that tips the scales of history. We are the individual makeweights ourselves, and thus the responsibility rests on us. As the Buddha said, ye suffer from yourselves. And to the extent that this personal yet universal burden can be assumed and carried by us, to that extent have we been good alchemists, effective masters of the great art, and accomplishers of the union of the opposites. It is then and thus that in the words of the poet T.S. Eliot we shall know, quote, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. When the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of life, and the fire and the rose are one. That's it. That's chapter one. We made through the whole thing. Chapter one of Freedom and Alchemy for a Voluntary Society. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope that what shown through in my reading and the comments I made of that chapter um, will set the stage for what we're exploring here with esoteric patriotism, and that is the centrality of the individual and our cultural heritage, um, the culture that we live in, uh, all the way down to our political and economic system um, in its original intended framework is one that is rooted in this recognition of the divine, sovereign, autonomous nature of the individual. And Bishop Heller lays that out in further detail in the future chapters. So I hope everybody enjoyed this. I hope you tune back in for chapter two, which will be coming soon. Um, wherever you're listening to or watching this video, as always, please like it, please subscribe, please share it with your friends, and reach out to me on social media, comments on the video, good comments, bad comments, criticism, debate, whatever. Uh, I just want to have engaged listeners. I want this to affect your life, make you think, and help spurn your inner process of awakening and liberation. So uh, we'll see you again soon. And as always, you know, the main thing is to seek, seek the mysteries, seek the mystery within, find out who and what you really are, root yourself in being that thing that is looking through your eyes and hearing through your ears right now. I'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks for listening to Modern Gnostic. I hope you enjoyed the show. Wherever you listen or watch, be sure to like, share, uh, leave some comments, let your friends and family know about it. We're trying to get this material out to as many people as possible. If you're listening to the audio podcast, know that there is there are videos for each one of these episodes over at the Modern Gnostic YouTube channel. And if you are watching on YouTube, then you can listen to the audio. Uh, just go wherever you listen to podcasts and search Modern Gnostic and you can find us there. Uh, as always, I appreciate you listening. I really encourage you to go out and buy Stefan Heller's book so that you can follow along and stay tuned because more episodes are coming.